All right, I just want to say another quick prayer before we get started. Lord, would you hide me and Brittany behind the cross today? Would you let your word be spoken, and would you prepare every heart here to hear what you have to say, God, regardless of how it comes across? Amen. All right, so today I want to talk about faith, what it is, and why it's important. So uh, let me see if my little clicker is going to work here. Toward us? This way? I got, I got nothing on this little clicker. Okay. Possibly not. Is that better? No. Okay. Maybe, maybe you guys can just do it. <laughs> okay. Ah, okay. Is that going to work now? No? Whoa, there we go. Okay. Oh, there we go. Okay. Okay. Let me see if that. Okay, here we go. <laughs> All right, so. As we see in some of these verses, right, faith is very central to Christianity, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life tells us that salvation itself depends on faith, right? And in the Gospels, we see Jesus chiding people for a lack of faith, saying, you have little faith, or unbelieving and perverse generation, or asking people, where is your faith? And he tells us all things are possible to, the, to him who believes. And then in Hebrews 6, we have it even stronger. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So as someone who grew up in the church, right, I've always known that faith is central to Christianity. But what I struggled with for a long time and what I didn't understand was why? Why should Christianity be based on faith, right? Is confidently accepting that everything we've been told about Christianity and God is true, is that more virtuous than trying to figure out if it makes sense? And why would that be more virtuous? Um, so these questions were particularly potent for me because when I was in high school, my brother left the faith because he decided there wasn't enough evidence, right? It didn't make sense to him. He raised a number of philosophical arguments that made a lot of sense to me, and I developed my own doubts about God and Christianity that led me to keep them both at arm's length for a number of years while I tried to figure out what I believed. And the whole time, I knew that according to Christianity, a lack of faith is sinful, but I didn't want to embrace it if it wasn't true, and it made me angry to think that people who grew up in the church and accepted Christianity without ever really thinking about it, right, that they should be acceptable and pleasing to God, while people like me and my brother, who cared about truth and did honest intellectual labor to come by our beliefs, should be rejected and unable to please God. And uh, that's what I thought Hebrews 11.6 meant when it said that without faith it is impossible to please God. Um, but today, I believe that the biblical concept of faith is a little bit different from what I always thought. And I think there's a lot of confusion in the church about what faith is and what it's supposed to look like. And in my case, that came with a lot of heartache and questions and confusion and distance from God. And I think a proper understanding of faith can go a long way toward addressing that confusion and repairing intimacy. And so that's why I want to talk about it today. So point one, 
What is faith? I want to start here with our English definition of the word. So Google, according to Google, faith in a spiritual sense <laughs> is defined as strong belief in God or in the doctrines of a religion based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. And then belief in turn is an acceptance that a statement is true or that something exists. So right here built into our definition of the English word faith is this idea that faith is different than logic, right? It doesn't depend on proof. It's kind of this mystical sense of knowing that we just arrive at through other means than proof, right? However, um, oh, I'm not going to give that away quite yet. Okay. <laughs> uh, when we read the Bible, it's important to recognize that the Bible was not written in English, but it was actually written in Greek. So when we see the word faith in the Bible, that's not necessarily exactly the same as our English word for faith, right? It's a translation of a Greek word, which comes with a different set of definitions and connotations that only kind of partly overlap with our English words. So I want to take a look at the Greek word for faith, which is pistis. So this is from Wiktionary, all the definitions of the Greek word pistis. Trust in others, faith. Belief in a higher power, faith. The state of being persuaded of something, belief. Trust in a commercial sense, credit. Faithfulness, honesty, trustworthiness, fidelity. That's which gives assurance, such as a treaty, an oath, or a guarantee. A means of persuasion, such as an argument or a proof, or that which is entrusted. Now, I also found, googling this Greek word pistis, that in Greek rhetoric, one would use pistis in the sense of proof or evidence, to construct pistis in the sense of an argument or a means of persuasion, appropriate to produce pistis or the state of being persuaded, agreement, this is kind of our faith definition, in a given audience. So important to note here about this Greek word is that there's nothing here to suggest that it's independent of proof. In fact, kind of quite the opposite, right? This word means the state of being persuaded, but it also means the means of persuasion or the proof that leads you to this state of persuasion. So um, in English, you might say, uh, I don't need evidence, or I can't explain my reasons for believing the way I do. I just have faith. But in Greek, that whole idea would be kind of nonsensical, because what you would be saying is, I don't need pistis. I just have pistis. <laughs> It's a contradiction of terms. So this is a complex word with a lot of, lot of definitions, and it's going to take us a while to unpack it. But I want to start here. Point one, faith implies having evidence. So now there's a, I want to look at this verse. Now faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Um, it might be difficult to like accept this idea that maybe faith and reason weren't meant to be independent, but they're actually working together. But in this verse, the word for substance here comes from hypostasis, the Greek word that means support, substance, steadiness, assurance, and it can be like a legal term for the assurance that you own something, such as the deed to a property. Um, and then the word for evidence here is from a verb that means to cross-examine. It's an argument that proves something. So I used to think that this verse meant that our evidence that God is real is that we believe it. 
And it's just this feeling of confident belief that we have, and that's the evidence that God is real, and that seemed kind of unsatisfying. But in Greek, the word faith can actually be taken as a synonym for the word for substance and for evidence. And I think what Paul is really saying here is not that our feeling of belief is our evidence, but that the fact that we have been fully persuaded by good evidence is our evidence for the things that are not seen and the things that are hoped for. So remember that Paul's faith was based on Christ appearing to him on the road to Damascus and blinding him with a light from heaven and saying, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, right? That is substance and that is evidence. And so that's what, that's what Paul's faith was based on. So if this is what faith is supposed to be like, right, then what is the evidence that our faith should be based on? Shortly after I graduated from college, I had come to a place in my walk with the Lord where I was persuaded enough that Christianity was likely, that I wanted to give God the benefit of the doubt, but I still didn't feel like I had enough evidence to be 100% sure that it was true. And I felt this burden to sink through all of the evidence and consider every angle, right, and build a proof for myself that Christianity was true so that I could have faith that was substantive. And I didn't feel like I could fully commit to believing until this work was done. And around this time, I found myself at a retreat in Phoenix where the speaker invited everyone to write a prophetic word on a note card, and then we could all go pick one up. And the one I picked up had this verse on it, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. Whoop. Okay. <laughs> and... Uh, so this brings us to point number two. Faith proceeds from hearing God, right? So faith was never supposed to be something that we do or that we build using all the evidence that we find and gather. Faith is something God makes available to us through the evidence that he supplies when he speaks. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the free gift of God, not by works that no man should boast. This is kind of a well-known verse about salvation, right? Salvation isn't a work. It comes by faith. But I think what gets overlooked here is that faith itself is not of ourselves. It is the free gift of God, and it's not a work that we do. It's something that God makes available to us when he speaks. Not that we don't have a part to play, because I think we do, but our part isn't to solve the mysteries of the universe through our own strength and wisdom, and it's equally not our part to blind ourselves to logic and evidence and insist that God is real or that he will perform miracles through us just because that's what other people have said. Our part is merely to listen when God speaks and to remain humble and teachable before him instead of resisting him in those moments or forgetting about them or explaining them away, right? It's to hold on to those moments when he speaks. We have this here in Hebrews. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. Right, the Israelites saw the work of God for 40 years, and they heard his voice. And the injunction to them was not that they believe based on nothing, right? But that they hold on to that, and that they not harden their hearts against 
God's voice when they heard it. So I had an unsaved friend once ask me if God is love and the point of Christianity is supposed to be having a relationship with God, why is Christianity centered around this idea of faith and what you believe instead of love and how close you are to God? And I didn't really know what to tell her at the time, but today I think that biblical faith is supposed to be sourced in the intimacy of hearing the voice of God rather than in an unsubstantiated set of beliefs. Jesus, who gave us a perfect example of how to live a life of faith, said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. This means that all the miracles that Jesus did, he did not because he got it into his own mind to go out on a limb on faith, right, and perform these miracles, but because he lived in such perfect intimacy with the Father that he listened whenever God prompted him to do something, and then he did just that. Faith is meant to be intimate. Remember also that Jesus said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. So the people in this verse right had the right set of beliefs, but their faith wasn't sourced in hearing the word of God. There was no intimacy. Their faith was their own work, and that's why it was deemed unacceptable. So point three, faith extends itself into action. As you recall, the Greek word for faith, or, well, maybe you don't remember, <laughs> but the Greek word for faith can also mean faithfulness. And I think James captures the relationship between the two concepts best in this passage here. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So this word, from, this word completed in the Greek can also mean perfected, and, uh, or to, to make perfect, complete, accomplish. And uh, the analogy for it is like one of those pirate telescopes that gets longer. So when it unfolds all the way and you can use it to see the farthest, then it is complete and perfect for its intended use. And um, so what James is saying here is that true faith extends itself into action or results in action that is faithful to and consistent with the conviction that it has. So in the Gospels, we often see Jesus commending people for having great faith, and I know that I used to think that great faith meant a strong or confident belief that Jesus was God or that he would heal them. But considering what James says here about faith being completed through action, I think what great faith really means is faith that results in action consistent with its convictions. If I have great faith that Jesus is God, that means I treat him with honor and deference and make him the Lord of my life. How confidently I feel about the conviction is less relevant to the measure of my faith and the extent to which my faith is borne out in my actions. Consider, for example, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Pharaoh told them that they had to bow down to this image that he made, and they said, 
that they wouldn't do it. And he said, if you don't do it, I'll throw you into the furnace. And they said, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, I think a lot of times in the church, we get it into our minds that having faith means insisting that God will perform a miracle and closing your mind to the possibility that he won't. And that's what great faith is. That's confident belief. But here, these guys, they're, they're saying, look, even if he does not, like we're acknowledging that that's a possibility, but we're still not going to bow down to the image. And that is faithfulness. That is action consistent with their convictions. And I think that's what great faith looks like. We also have here Esther. Um, so there's this decree given against the Jews that they must all be killed on this particular day. And Mordecai says to Esther, you need to go to the king and ask him for mercy, ask him to deliver the Jews. And she says, well, I can't go because if to enter the king's presence without being invited can result in death. And uh, Mordecai tells her to go anyway. And she says, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now, there's not even any mention here that surely God will deliver me. But she goes to the king anyway, and she, and right, she has everybody pray for her for three days, like she intercedes for God to do this for her. And then she does what is consistent with her convictions. And I think that that is faith. Um, all right, now let me see where I am in my notes. Okay. So, this brings us to subpoint number four, faith as dependence on God. So, another definition of the Greek word pistis is trust, and I think this is an important part of what faith means, especially in the context of Jesus affirming people for their faith or chiding them for not having enough of it. So, I want to consider the blind man who calls out to Jesus in Luke. He cries, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. So in this, uh, in this passage, right, it's not, it's not clear whether the blind man thought that Jesus would heal him, or whether he believed that he definitely would receive his sight. But it's clear, right, that he's calling out to Jesus. He thinks Jesus can heal him, and he's asking for it. And, um, so, and I think that that is faith, that, that it means trust, right? That means depending on God. Like, I know God can do this for me. I'm going to ask him for it. And I want to compare to this Old Testament passage. So some of the Israelites are going to take possession of their land. And it says that they were helped in fighting them, and God handed the Hagrites and all their allies over to them because they cried out to him during the battle. He answered their prayers because they trusted in him. Now, 
I think that this crying out to God during the battle kind of implies that maybe they weren't confident that they would win. Otherwise, they wouldn't, you know, have been so desperate that they were crying out. But they put their hope in God, and they turned to him to ask for deliverance, and they trusted in him. And I think that 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 trust is part of what faith means. So um, for another... Oh, and let me, let me see what else I was going to say here. Okay. So, um, yeah, okay. And so this is the same thing that we saw in the blind man, right? He's just calling out to Jesus like, God, I want to see. And I know you can do it for me. And I'm turning to you and looking to you to do that. And I think that that trust and that faith is the faith that moves the heart of God to bring about healing and deliverance. For another quick example, I want to look at Asa and Hezekiah. Okay, so King Asa became diseased in his feet, and it became increasingly severe, but even in his illness, he did not seek the Lord, but only the physicians. So Asa died. By contrast, Hezekiah becomes ill, and he's told that he's going to die, and here's what he says. Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And it says that Hezekiah wept bitterly. He wept bitterly before the Lord because he desired healing and he knew that God could heal him and he turned to God and asked for what he wanted. And God comes back and says, I have heard your prayers and seen your tears. I will heal you. So what is faith? Faith is a state of being persuaded based on the evidence of God's word to us about his existence, his character, and his will that results in our acting in accordance with our convictions and putting our trust in him. This brings us to point two. Why does faith please God? So I'm engaged to be married this fall to an amazing man by the name of Junior Peterson. And falling in love has helped me understand a lot of things about God's heart for me that I didn't really get before. Specifically when it comes to God's heart behind expressing his love for us in gifts. Now, Junior is not a gifts person. He's a very independent, self-reliant individual, accustomed to meeting his own needs and providing for his own desires and restraining himself from desiring things that he knows that he can't get. And most of the time, this is great. But early in our relationship, I found I had a hard time expressing my love for him in ways that he was willing to accept or in ways that actually served to bring us closer together because um, he'd been through a number of failed relationships before he met me, and one of the ways in which he responded was by learning not to want too much from a relationship, right? He had a certain amount of time and affection and affirmation that he wanted, and after that, he was good. And if I tried to give him any more than what he had room for, it didn't really bring him joy so much as confusion. And he's like, (laughs) his reaction was kind of like, why this waste, right? (laughs) This is unnecessary. I don't need it. I didn't ask for it. I suppose I'll take it if you really insist on giving it. But at this point, it's not so much for my sake as for yours. And I found it so distressing to feel like I had these rivers of love that I just wanted to pour out on Junior, but he only had room for this pond, right? (laughs) And then he was completely filled up, and everything after that was just kind of a waste. 
And God's love, of course, is so much greater than mine, and he knows that we're much too tiny to receive anything close to the full extent. And he constantly gives without a care for the fact that most of it goes to waste without us even noticing. Jesus tells us he causes his son to... No, don't have that up there. So I'll just give it to you. (laughs) Jesus tells us that he causes his son to shine on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, right? He gives regardless of whether we thank him or not, whether anyone notices or not. And he doesn't give with strings attached, and he doesn't want us to feel indebted or unworthy or to perform this ongoing duty of giving thanks. But when he gives, it's his desire that the gift serves to draw us closer to him, to create greater intimacy between us. And I have had such pleasure watching Junior grow in his ability to receive affection for me with joy, and I think that's how it is with God. It brings him a special pleasure when we eagerly embrace the gifts that he has for us and when our hearts are tender enough to receive the full measure of love from him that they represent. And that's why I think God reserves some gifts that he longs to give us until our hearts are ready for them. So why is faith important? Consider with me five possible responses to a gift. So I'll just give you this concrete example. My last name is Flaherty, and I've always been a huge fan of having Flaherty as my last name. I like that it's unique. I like that it's Irish. I like that it identifies me as belonging to my immediate family and to my extended Flaherty clan. But it's in my heart to change my name to Peterson as a symbol of exchanging my identification in my family from Flaherty to just to Peterson. Um, so that Junior knows that he's my family and my identity is now first in us as a unit. So consider the possible responses that Junior could have, right? Number one would be overlook it. I could go ahead and change my name to Peterson after the wedding without talking to Junior about it, and maybe eventually he notices but never really thinks anything about it. As I said before, God gives us many gifts despite the fact that this is usually our reaction but it's not the reaction, right, that fills me with joy, and it's not the reaction that fills God with joy either. So response number two, diminish it. Suppose I told Junior I wanted to change my name to Peterson, and his response was, okay, whatever you want. If you change it, that'll be nice, but if not, no problem. It's just a name. And um, I think a lot of times we take this view of things God wants to give us, It's the response of a heart that wants to protect itself from asking too much. If I only want a little, I can only be a little disappointed. But it's also true that if I only want a little, I can only be blessed a little. This isn't the response that I hope for from Junior, and I don't think it's the one that brings God the most joy. So response number three, resist it. Try to refuse it. Imagine if Junior said, look, if your name Flaherty is important to you, keep it. I'm not asking you to change it for me. That's not something I need, and I'd rather not have you put yourself out on my account. So I think we take this view with God, too. And it's a response that would make me so sad coming from Junior, and I think it makes God sad, too. You don't understand. I have this gift, and I want to give it to you. And maybe there is some sacrifice involved on my part, but that's nothing compared to the joy it would bring me to bring you joy by giving you this gift. And I think sometimes God wants to take some part of our hearts or our minds or our bodies and heal them. And we say, 
No, God, don't bother. It's too much, and I've made peace with it. I mean, if you really insist upon glorifying yourself in this way, go ahead, (laughs) but don't do it for my sake, because it's not needed. So response, response number four, presume it. Well, if, imagine if Junior, Junior took this response. Well, of course you're going to change your name. We're getting married, and part of marriage is starting a new family, and I want you to change your name to symbolize leaving your family to join me. So you will. It's part of the marriage contract, and I'm very grateful that you've agreed to the marriage contract. But as far as changing your name goes, that automatically comes with the rest. So... I think this is the response that we often believe God wants from us. And um, (laughs) concerning many of the riches of his blessings, right? Praise God, Jesus died for my salvation and healing for my physical body and blessings in my finances go with that. So that's what I'm believing. And don't get me wrong, like this is a better response than overlooking or resisting or diminishing God's gifts. But if you assume that everything God has for you is guaranteed along with salvation, all his individual blessings lose their individual meanings. And instead of adding to your joy and your appreciation of his love for you, you hit a ceiling. You think you've already been promised everything you could ever want, and instead of being blessed by each promise that is fulfilled, you're confused and disappointed by everything and anything that you think was supposed to go with it that didn't. No, the response that brings God joy, I believe, is simply this, eagerly embracing and welcoming his gifts as an expression of his love. I want you to change your name, and I'm touched that you would do that for me. I feel it and welcome it as an expression of your love, and it moves me toward greater felt affection for you and from you, even though our love doesn't hinge upon this particular symbol, right? Now, I know this is the response that pleases me from Junior, and I believe this is the attitude of faith that pleases God. Faith trusts God enough to want what he has to give and to approach him with that desire. Consider the rest of Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, it's not the case that God won't bless people who don't come to him or who don't believe he will reward them. But it brings him a special delight when we draw near to him, when we come close enough to listen and close enough to receive the blessings he has for us with an open heart. The word prayer in Greek is made up of two parts. or however you say that, which means a wish or a prayer and prose, which means toward or exchange. So properly, you could understand this Greek word as being made up of parts that mean an exchange of wishes. That is, we draw near to God with our wishes and allow him to replace them with wishes for what he wants to give us. I think there's a lot of confusion about this in the church as we think the prayer of faith means confidently believing God will give us what we want instead of confidently trusting that God is good and handing our wishes over to him to refine. Sometimes God will say no to your original wish, and that doesn't mean he doesn't love you and want to bless you, and it doesn't mean you didn't have enough or the right kind of faith. Consider, for example, this passage where Paul is recounting the great heroes of faith from the Old Testament. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. 
Some faced jeers and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Not all the great heroes of faith got deliverance and victory in this life. And if you want an example from the New Testament, Paul said this, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul had one thing in mind that he wanted, but God had a different plan. And sometimes we think the response that demonstrates faith is one that ignores this possibility and insists on believing God will bring about whatever end is desired. But I think the right response is to listen to what God is saying, to trust his character, and to embrace what he tells you he is giving you instead. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The important thing to realize is that when we delight ourselves in God, he is empowered to change the desires of our heart to accord with what he wants to give us. But before you let yourself feel disappointed or give up and decide that maybe deliverance isn't God's plan for you for this life, remember this first. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, this verse, right, doesn't say that if you ask God for bread, he's going to give you bread. But it does say he's not going to give you a stone. Like, he's going to give you something good, and maybe it'll be a banana. But you know what? (laughs) It'll still satisfy you and be what you need. And uh, if you trust him with your wishes, he will give you his own, and you won't be disappointed. So in closing, I just want to speak a word of encouragement to anyone who struggles with doubt or has felt condemned for not confidently feeling certain of God and of all of his promises. There are rebukes in the New Testament against those who doubt. For example, this verse in James. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. So uh, in English, our word for doubt means a feeling of uncertainty or lack of conviction. And as a verb, it means to feel uncertain about or to question the truth or fact of something, right? But in Greek, the word means discern, see, perceive, detect, or differentiate. And it comes from the root dia, which means thoroughly back and forth, and krino, which means to judge. So properly, this word means to investigate or judge thoroughly. Um, judging back and forth, which can be either positive, close reasoning, or negative, vacillating between these two opinions. Okay, so this word is unrelated to passive feelings of uncertainty. Instead, it pertains to an active judging back and forth. 
If we overjudge our possible outcomes or desires when we ask for something from God, we might decide we don't need what we ask for. We can do without it. We might take back our request or harden ourselves to the desire. And if we overjudge when we hear the word of God, we might decide maybe it wasn't from God after all and choose not to act on it. When James says you mustn't doubt, he isn't saying that you should never feel uncertain. He is saying, have a faith that puts its trust in God and expresses itself in action, faithful to conviction based on the word of God, without hiding or vacillating from his calling and his invitation, because that is the faith that pleases God.